Creative Discourse podcast. Creative Discourse, a newsletter where we're trying to rediscover the lost art and forgotten science of persuasion by thinking and acting creatively. I am Michael Schaus, founder and owner of Schaus Creative LLC, as well as, well, the founder of Creative Discourse. And um, if you read any of my stuff, if, if you've been following me for any amount of time, you know that I am almost, you could almost use the word obsessed with trying to discover the way that the world around us is changing. And as it turns out, the world is clearly changing. There's just massive disruption everywhere you look, whether it's in politics or culturally or, or technologically. And I think the technological disruption, stuff like social media and AI, is kind of driving a lot of the other disruption that we have culturally and stuff. So to those ends, kind of, I wanted to bring somebody on to talk about some of what's going on in the tech space, especially when it comes to social media. We have discussions about age verification laws uh, coming to, to social media, which is a terrifying thought for a whole host of reasons. Um, maybe talk a little bit about AI and the fact that everybody's freaking out that the robots are going to come for our jobs. So please welcome Shoshona Weissman. She is with Our Streets, which is a fantastic think tank. If you don't know what they do out in DC, you've got to go check them out. They do a ton of great work on regulatory reform and the like. And Shoshona is is awesome if you if you avoid twitter by the way you might not really know a whole lot about her uh but if you go and visit the social media platform formerly known as twitter and find her she is one of my favorite people in policy nowadays and partially that's just because her hobbies kind of align with mine as well so uh shoshona thank you so much for for joining and we we really appreciate it oh my gosh thank you so much for having me and for the very very kind intro i really appreciate it yeah, no, I mean, it's first, before we get into the tech stuff, we got to tackle all the important things. How many 14ers have you climbed so far? Because every time I look at your your profile, you're out there somewhere in Utah or Colorado or something. So I've only done 12. I wanted to do more this year. Three only happened. The weather was getting to me. Last year, I did eight, though, but they were all a little bit shorter and I could get them in some groups. But the three this year were... Uh, two of the biggest in the Rockies, the second and third in the continental US. And then it's like 19th and 20th, if you include Alaska, because Alaska has a lot of 16ers and higher 14ers that like I'll never be able to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, you say that, but I mean, you've already done you know, 12. I, there are a ton of people out there who haven't even done one. I, I always it forget kills me. That... They're so beautiful. Like, I don't know how people can like live nearby and like not do them. They're like, like I, it's cool because they're high and stuff, but they're just so freaking beautiful. I just can't get over it. Yeah, I mean, I grew up in the Rocky Mountains out in Colorado. Now I live out in Las Vegas, but we still go to Colorado all the time. And I just kind of took it for granted growing up that they were right there in my backyard. It, yeah. it's, it stuns me when I meet people who live in, say, Denver, and they've never gone hiking in, in some of those beautiful areas in the Colorado Rockies that are right in their backyard. It's it's amazing to me. Yeah. I mean, like there's so much people need to see like the marmots, the goats. It's just <laughs> the greatest thing ever when you're hiking and you're tired. And then there's just this freaking mountain goat that's like, hey, I'm like right next to you and I'm not going to bother you, but you can take pictures of me. <laughs> Well, and this is actually what I love about, you know, there are a lot of people who are kind of doomsayers when they start looking at technology and social media and stuff. And I've never been somebody that's been terribly concerned with the cultural impact of social media. And part of it's because I love some of the positives that it offers. And this is a great example. Yeah. It used to be if if you lived in Washington, D.C. and you wanted to go start climbing 14ers, unless you happen to know somebody 
you'd have no way to interact with people personally about it. Whereas now you, you post online, Hey, here's a picture. Here's what I'm going to go do. And all of a sudden you build this entire community around you of people that have similar interests to me. That is such yeah. an amazing kind of undervalued aspect of where we are technologically in, in the 21st century. Yeah, it's so underrated. And it drives me nuts that people are like, oh, social media is bad and evil and inherently evil. And I'm like, one, it's just people. So stop. And two, like people who say that don't engage with all the incredible things online. Like the reason I can do the hikes I do is all trails because there's so much information there. Like the 14ers group too, I'll usually combine info from both of them to know the exposure. And it's not always perfect, but it usually pretty much tells me what I need to know about the hike. I can see water sources on the map. People can tell me if the water sources have dried up because maps aren't everything or if like like yeah you, you see a stream on a map but you don't know if it's overflowing if it's underflowing and then reviews tell you that like it's all crowdsourced information that makes this stuff possible and without it like there's no way i just like go to colorado and like know what to do i'd be like man can't really breathe right now not sure what's going on like why is this go going to harm me what are the rules but crowdsourcing information around the stuff is the entire reason i'm able to do it and like there's definitely not enough gratitude for all the blessings of the internet yeah. And I really think it's just how you inter interact with those platforms. You know, I mean, yeah. you can scroll onto political Twitter or X or whatever it's called nowadays. <laughs> and yes, there's a ton of dumbassery there on. I mean, it's it's yeah, they can really kind of demoralize you culturally if you look at some of that stuff. But at the same time, you know, we found little tiny life example. My wife and I found the most wonderful Italian restaurant in Las Vegas yeah. and we found it online it was you know somebody oh, was yeah. talking about it and it was like wow and it's this little tiny hole in the wall i think it's behind like a walgreens or something so as every great restaurant it's not big and flashly it's just this tiny little place um why do we always focus on the negative though i mean you've got people freaking out about free speech concerns on social media and we can talk a little bit about that you've got people freaking out about kids using social media and and to be fair i mean there's as a parent there's concern that social oh, yeah. media can definitely be bad for for certain teenagers or what have you, but why do we focus on that negative and then immediately go running to government and say, hey, fix this for us? It's moral panics. It's just cycles and cycles of moral panics because government loved social media maybe 10 years ago, even a little bit less. And then it just decided, hey, if I freak out, out, sorry, if I freak out over this, I can get lots of attention. And that's, it's a bad incentive, oddly enough, driven in part by social media, but also driven in part by news. Like it's, uh, news has incentive to be against social media because it kind of competes with them in certain ways. So news is always kind of going after social media. There's all these perverse incentives. And it's also just, you know, it's sad because there's, it's, it's a human nature thing that we want like cute puppies or we want freak outs and we don't always want good news. Like we don't want to know things are okay. We want, we kind of want to know things aren't okay. So we're okay for not feeling okay and stuff like that. I think there's different levels of it, but it's all coming down to human nature stuff. And it's all stuff we've seen before when it comes to video games, um, when it comes to bicycles, there have been moral panics around bicycles, chess, reading, like literally everything, jazz, there's, there's this great series of stuff that was blamed on jazz. And now if your kid's listening to jazz, you're like, is my kid okay? Like, it's really old school, but all right. But it's, um, it's a lot of human nature stuff. And it's frustrating. Like, I always want us to overcome it. And I realize that you can't always overcome human nature that way, especially like, I'm sure there's stuff I freak out about that's not really a big deal. But I wish that lawmakers would be a little bit more responsible and take evidence and do consideration instead of just going along with the freakouts to make things probably worse for everyone. 
Yeah, and that's that's kind of what I saw a while ago. I guess it's been a couple of years since it's been major discussion, but everybody was talking about reforming Section 230 or yeah. fixing the free speech concerns. And and it was funny to me because I always say that bipartisanship's not always a good thing. A lot of times when people <laughs> agree on things, that's for the wrong reasons. And that's kind of what you saw with uh, when it came to free speech online. You had supposed conservatives and Republicans freaking out saying, hey, we need to regulate this because they're censoring our point of view. And then you had people on the other side of the aisle saying, yeah, there's too much misinformation out there. We need to fix this and hold platforms accountable. And the end result in both cases would have just been less speech online. Yeah. It would have been reforming 230 and and it would have decimated what we know as social media, but also even beyond that, going into the websites like All Trails or Yelp or something, it would have decimated them um oh yeah i I mean talk just briefly about where that conversation is because it worries me as a major free speech guy it worries me that that kind of political incentive to muck around with technology is going to just continue in perpetuity oh it will and it's kind of moving to ai now the kids online stuff and ai is more where it's at with section 230 there it's still kind of like this boogeyman, which is insane, because if you listen to any hearings, listen to what any politicians are saying about their concerns, they're mad that their speech is not prioritized. That's all it comes down to. And it's really messed up. Like in hearings, you'll hear congressmen say, oh, your employee criticized me. Why is he still with you? Excuse me? Like that's the proper role of government? Like, of course, everyone's biased. Everyone has some inherent biases and they're hard to overcome, even by the most well-intentioned people. And even if they're intentionally biased, who cares? That's free speech. And if it you don't like it, go somewhere else. Like people are leaving Twitter because Elon's kind of ruining it. And people are, are leaving Facebook because Facebook just isn't a great platform. And they're going to Instagram, but they're also going to other places. And there's other bigger and smaller ones. But basically speech moves around and that's a healthy thing that it goes where it's going to make the most sense. The lawmakers saw opportunity to play victim, which is crazy. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it really kills me to see that because like I care very much about free speech and about the government not infringing on that and the games they're playing with oh the first amendment protects you against business what like no the first amendment protects you against government infringements on speech or government using uh platforms like there's even been some talk uh through the twitter files that oh we should go after these companies for being used by the government to censor. No, we should tell the government not to censor. Like, that's the core problem. Censorship is an issue, but it's coming from inside the House, from inside, you know, the White House and the Congress House. But um, it's really frustrating because there's just this real, there. it's always been here, this real incentive to censor speech. Even the kids online stuff, this happened on the 90s. And like, there's so much precedent showing you just can't do it because of all the free speech implications. But lawmakers don't care. And even the ones I love just really don't seem to understand the issue and seem to just kind of buy into this broad panic. It happened with 230. It's a little more intense with the kids online stuff. But once it gets to the courts, the courts are going to strike this stuff down and we'll have wasted a bunch of time and money and effort instead of doing constructive things, which I know isn't it happens a lot, but it's still frustrating to see. <laughs> and this is kind of a good example of uh, the way that it's so easy to panic about things because you're absolutely right. There's always been a resistance against free speech. I mean, I think back to one of the really famous cases of the ACLU when they actually defended the right for Nazis to go march in, in Illinois. You know, that was that was because people didn't want to hear the Nazis. And so they were going to use government to silence the Nazis. And by the way, not a fan of Nazis, um, absolutely hate them, but that doesn't mean that you can legally silence them as a government. Um, So we've always had this fight. I think people freak out about 
currently technological fights because it it feels new. We there's so yeah. much uncertainty there. So when we look at kids online, for example, um, you know, Jonathan Haidt has he's a great researcher, and I really like a lot of what he says, especially when he's talking about the way the human brain works and and uh, kind of the science behind persuasion. Uh, he's done a lot of research saying, look, social media is really bad for kids. And all right, that might be true. And maybe parents should keep their kids off of social media for for a little while or reduce the usage of social media. But that moral panic has translated into political panic and yeah. states saying, hey, let's go ahead and implement age verification laws. Explain why I should be terrified of an age verification law, because most people are thinking, all right, 18 to get on social media. What? So what? You have to be you know, 21 to buy cigarettes in most states. Like, who cares? Oh, my gosh. It kills me. And it's funny what you're saying, because I know where you're going with it. And it's what I'm hearing all the time. So first, I love Jonathan Haidt, but it's insane because he like wrote The Coddling of the American Mind. And then it's like, hey, guys, we really ought to coddle this American mind. <laughs> and I've been on social media since I was a little kid. Like, my parents watched over it. And then it became my career. I like on social media, I connected with elected officials as a teenager, and then I got jobs and internships, I would not be doing the things I'm doing without social media as a teenager. I found out I had fibromyalgia through some random internet forum because someone, I had Googled like getting sick all the time and endometriosis. Cause I'm like, I know if there's something else up. I have eight autoimmune <laughs> diseases now. Before, back then I only knew about two. And I figured, I felt like there had to be some connection. And then on a forum, someone was saying, hey, if you're getting sick all the time, and if you have endometriosis, you should check into fibromyalgia. So I did, and I had it. And now I've been on medication for like most of my life and it stops me from getting sick all the time. And it's this incredible use as a teenager. So I would be really, really sick if we didn't have social media. Like a lot of my uh, disease research for myself comes from various forums because autoimmune diseases aren't really well understood, but people are kind of crowdsourcing their information. And I'm always checking with my doctor, checking medication and supplement interactions, trying stuff. But I found so much stuff that works through social media, often as when I was a teenager, which is amazing. Um, but yeah, the, the data is also pretty inconclusive. If you look at most of the studies, they're either not well done. There's a lot of people dropping out from them and other things that kind of make the studies not very reliable. Um, that said, you know, some kids shouldn't be on social media. It's not right for them, but it should be up to the parents. Like I like I can get into so many issues with it. Uh, it's uh, the core problem with age verification is twofold. Like if you get down to it, one is that kids have First Amendment rights. And even when it came to violent video games, Scalia was like, yo, you can't, if you're not banning violent movies, you're not banning violent anything else. It's just violent video games. So it's under-inclusive. And it's also over-inclusive in that violent video games are First Amendment protected speech. There's limits when it comes to pornography and certain other things, but it's very, very narrow and kids have First Amendment rights. So that's one core issue that you have to respect that in most of social media is First Amendment protected content. The other issue is how you do age verification. And the most accurate way to do it is uh, face scans, government ID. So usually some combination of identification and biometrics. Do you want that tied to stuff when you're Googling marriage problems, when you're searching um, for forums for HIV help, to have your identity tied to that forever, people will stop looking up sensitive information. And that's a major First Amendment violation that chills speech. You There's know, so much more that flows down from it. But those are kind of the two big issues there. Well, and also, you know, it wasn't that long ago. I remember everybody was freaking out about how much information Facebook and Twitter had about us anyway. Yeah. And now we're, oh, yeah, here's my government ID and biometrics so I can you know, post something on a social media platform. That's, 
that to me is probably the most terrifying aspect of it is just the idea that you would write laws that basically yeah. force people to hand over terribly sensitive information. I stopped, even though it was for my work, I, I did social media in, in my previous job quite a bit. And I had to upload a government ID in order to run certain ads on Facebook because they were had a right. moral panic about political advertising and what have you. I that made me so uncomfortable. I actually hired an intern to do this for me. That's funny. So the idea that I would be forced to do that in order to, you know, share my photography <laughs> habit with folks, that's that's a terrifying idea. No, you're totally right. It opens up opportunity for hacks and for blackmail. You know, someone hacks into an HIV forum, gets all of everyone's IDs. And is like, hey, I know you have HIV or think you have HIV. I'm going to share this with your wife or your partner or your job. That's ripe opportunity for blackmail or even, um, I mean, there's just endless examples of it, even pretty benign stuff. Like I'm open about my diseases, but not everyone is. You know, HIV has extra stigma. Fibromyalgia doesn't quite so much, but a lot of people just don't want everyone to know they have fibromyalgia or whatever disease. So that creates other like really risky opportunity there. Plus, um, you can't, none of this works. Like that uh, fundamental problem people don't get is this doesn't work. Face scans don't recognize people of color well. They can't figure out their age as well. Um, not everyone has government IDs. I didn't have an ID when I was a kid. Like, I don't know how that worked. Um, some adults don't have government IDs. You're stopping them from accessing speech. Um, and even the Supreme Court said uh, back in the 90s when they wanted to, uh, to force everyone accessing pornographic sites to use um, their credit cards, they're like, no, you can't put in this major barrier to speech here because like, one, security, but two, like, this is a, a major barrier to speech, especially if these sites are otherwise free and not requiring uh, ID. Uh, there's major precedent here that all lawmakers have seemed to ignore. You know, you can use your, your mom's ID the same way you could use your dad's credit card. Like, uh, there's this great Simpsons episode where Bart's like, hey, Lisa, is this dad's uh, credit card number? And she and he reads it off and she's like, you know, it is like we all did that as kids, like if we needed the credit card for stuff online. Um, and the one of the most interesting problems here, too, is with VPNs. Um, you dove really deep here. And basically, there's no possible way to stop all or anywhere near all VPNs. And uh, the laws do not exempt VPN traffic. So like if Facebook allows someone uh, to access Facebook without parental permission, uh, who's underage, um, because they're using a VPN and it seems like they're outside the law's jurisdiction, they're held liable. So there's just no way to do this. You also don't know if someone's a resident, if someone's there temporarily. So the highest restriction will basically rule and it rolls over everywhere. It's just so many layers of this doesn't work and it should be up to parents to use filters and stuff. Um, but oftentimes when I talk to lawmakers and say, hey, this is what exists out there. Here's the different kinds of filters. They're like, that's not enough. We need to regulate. And I'm like, OK, well, if parents aren't using filters, maybe we find ways to help them use those filters and to help them do stuff proactively and constructively. And I think just the last thing, too, is so we want kids to have no interaction online in that way until the moment they turn 18. So once they have more liability, more ability to do things wrong and no knowledge of how things work. We're like, hey guys, you're, now you can use free speech online, enjoy. I just don't think that's wise. Yeah, you don't think that's gonna that's gonna play out well? Um, oh my know, gosh. I mean, it's, it's kind of the same thing. This is something, you know, again, being the libertarian that I am, um, I used to talk about it with drinking laws and, and smoking yeah. laws and everything else. You know, if you helicopter over your child so that way they never have a drop of alcohol until they turn 21 and then all of a sudden send them off to college and say, hey, 
good luck, have fun. Uh, they're probably going to get drunk. Even those of us who drank responsibly as kids, you know, occasionally over overdid it. Um, so this idea that you're just going to say no social media for anybody under 18 is kind of crazy. But you're yeah. right. This is this is part of that kind of moral panic that turns into a political panic. And we see the same sort of thing taking place now in terms of AI and artificial intelligence. Uh, there's definitely yeah. the moral panic there. I, you know, I know that the writers in Hollywood are striking because of streaming services and how they get revenue and what have you. But also part of it is they were concerned about some of their jobs being taken over by AI. And oh, if yeah, you look I've seen at, posts saying, don't let robots take our jobs. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, like, well, it's just you technology. Know, <laughs> like, you know, on, and I did guys. write something a while ago. I was like, honestly, if AI took over Hollywood tomorrow, we probably wouldn't notice a difference because it would just turn out more Marvel movies. Right, but, exactly. <laughs> But, you know, there's definitely that moral kind of cultural panic already happening about it, especially in the artistic community and like copywriters are worried and things. And that's starting now to translate into a political panic as well. Every time I hear a politician talk about the need to regulate AI, it just it it worries me because I don't think anybody even knows the potential that's there for that technology oh, yet. Yeah. And we're already. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing that we have this like new gift to society and lawmakers are like, how can we restrict this as much as possible? Like there's amazing stuff where AI can double check doctors and find stuff they missed. Like where it's, it's, um, and I think this in general, that a lot of times technology doesn't replace people. It either gives extra capacity, extra accuracy, or just something else kind of there. That's how I use automation and AI in my work. And it's great because my employees are overloaded and now they're less overloaded because AI and automation is helping them. But um, it's just amazing that they're like, how do we sue this? Like their, their top priority is making sure we can sue it. And then you have the top AI companies trying to get regulated so that no competitors can start, which is really sick. And lawmakers are buying into it. Like Durbin was like, oh, wow, this is amazing. They want to be regulated. Never has this happened before. And I'm like, have you like read a book ever? Like they love being regulated because that entrenches them. And that's a real danger I worry about. We're like, sure, we'll still have cool AI, but we won't have the level of competition we should from different models and different ways it can work. Um, if Congress gets in there, but you're seeing the same kind of panic start, like finding ways to blame it rather than looking at, okay, well, what were the inputs? Someone said, to AI, like, hey, tell me to kill myself. And it did. And it's like, okay, well, that's, I'm not sure that person was gonna, I think there were other issues where AI, the best it could have intervened is the way that like search engines do where it'll say, oh, if you need help, call this hotline, something like that. But, um, but people are just finding any reason possible that they can blame AI, which kills me because you have this incredible opportunity. I mean, doctors are biased. I had many doctors write off my symptoms. Again, eight autoimmune diseases. I'm not like making stuff up. And they, uh, they'd written it off. But I wonder if AI would have caught it first, like, oh, you're dealing with this, you know, maybe you should see this kind of doctor. Um, or there, I mean, there's just endless possibility for AI. Um, some of it's not going to come into its own for a while. But it's just incredible, incredible to me that Congress and influencers just want to stop all this amazing opportunity before it even gets it kind of happened after social media came into its own. This is like a preemptive, oh, no, robots are going to take over everything and we need to stop it before it starts. It, it's very much the same pattern that we see in social media where yeah, so many people, culturally and politically, they just overlook all the wonderful benefits, the the things that are good about it. You know, I, I've been talking to a lot of artists who are worried about AI because yeah. they're and it's a legitimate worry. If you if you make you know, if you pay your bills through the kind of grunt work, you know, creative yeah. stuff, you know, creating little 
digital graphics and stuff. Yeah, that is going to be tough. But um, one of the things, and I'm saying this as a graphic designer and as an artist, it's it's actually going to make my handmade work so much more valuable moving forward. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that there's going to be this real understanding if everybody can do something on an AI engine in, in you know, two minutes, then there's going to be this real, it's kind of like organic food or something. I'm going to be creating organic art. You know, people yeah. are going to pay extra for it. And we should really embrace that. Also, as a graphic designer who does a lot of kind of creative grunt work, AI is amazing. It it yeah. has helped so much speed up my workflow, which gives me more time to do the bigger projects that I actually enjoy. So uh, I, I, I just, I worry that culturally people tend to take the advantages for granted and don't really pay totally. attention to that. Yeah. Like I think we need to figure out some level of attribution, especially there have been a couple of cases where AI just basically recreated an identical image to something that someone had photographed or created. And I know we need to figure that kind of stuff out or like if there's something that's just too close, like figuring out exactly how that works is important. But like you're saying, there's so much other stuff it can do. It can give people more power to experiment. And like, you know, there's people who can't afford to hire graphic designers and now they can have graphics that maybe aren't as good as the ones that graphic designers would have been able to make using AI too. But at least it's something like it's more access to that kind of stuff. And like, you know, people think, oh, well, what if my job goes away? I mean, jobs always are created because, okay, now we have this done by automation or by tech. So now you can do this whole thing. Like at um, our organization, we always just need more capacity and we never have it. But like when when you can add in Zapier and when you can add in, you know, ChatGPT into things, you can add so much more capacity. And then we can take the role of editor reviewing things, making sure everything is good, and then adding on more work and adding on more capacity. Um, like I, I could never see automating people out of jobs. I could see automating them out of the jobs they're currently doing and then giving them more interesting stuff that they enjoy more, especially because AI and uh, automation tend to do really, really well with repetitive tasks and uh, simple tasks, the kind of stuff that like people get really bored of. Um, so I don't know, I just, I'm so excited about it, but I think you're totally right that people just don't see all the incredible potential here and are just thinking about how things can hurt them, not all the cool stuff that's going to happen because of it. Yeah, we can automate you into promotions, not just into unemployment. You know, that's, that's I think yeah. something people don't think about enough. Um, where can people follow you? Obviously, they can follow you on Twitter or the social media program formerly known as Twitter. Um, <laughs> and And if they're okay with copious amounts of, hiking posts and and marmot pictures and everything else uh that's definitely a good place to follow you but where can people follow you and and especially when it comes to some of the policies that you guys are working on at r street when it comes to some of this tech yeah so we're we're on twitter still at rsi but also follow us on linkedin we're doing more on linkedin it's kind of becoming bigger for everyone uh which is sad too because linkedin has never fulfilled its potential and i have gripes about that that said we're still trying to do more there because a lot of our audience is there we'll probably be on other platforms we're on blue sky kind of but we're not sure if that's going to pan out i'm not on threads yet maybe when it happens on desktop i'll move there but right now it's like managing so many things and i hate it and uh sign up for our emails too we try to send out not too many and also make them really valuable um, we definitely under email rather than over email. So you get just what you need. And then I don't know if Twitter dies, we'll be somewhere else. If Twitter gets a new owner, we'll stay there. But Elon seems really like gung ho on just destroying a $44 billion purchase, which 
like bless him. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, to some extent, it's it's kind of fun watching because what you're seeing is you're seeing what he's done in every other business that he's had, where he just experiments and sees what works. But we're watching it in real time as people are. Oh my gosh. It's it's imploding. It's amazing. Um, and of course. <laughs> Of course, you are on Twitter as well. Uh, are you on anything? Are you on Instagram or something? Because I know that you've been taking pictures everywhere you hike. You oh, yeah, to, I do Instagram do and I'm also on Adobe stock. I haven't sold many photos, but I've now like I'm starting to sell more photos, which is really exciting. I'm like, yay, people like the picture they took from my phone while I was hiking. <laughs> but a lot on Instagram. I'm trying to become enough of an influencer on Instagram so I can get free Merrill shoes, which like I think is totally reasonable. <laughs> oh, life goals, right? <laughs> Well, no, I really appreciate you taking the time. As always, it's fun to chat with you. Um, oh, yeah. No, thank you so much for having me. I love getting to talk about this stuff. Again, Shoshona Wiseman with R Street. And uh, and here's the thing, as, as we close out, moral and cultural panics about what the future is going to bring is, well, I mean, it's just part of the human condition. Uh, it, it's kind of what we do as a society. We always have. It's It's just like every generation thinks that the one that came before it is completely out of touch and kind of clueless, and that the one that's coming after it is bringing about the destruction of the world as we know it. This is just the state of being. People do not like uncertainty. And unfortunately, tomorrow, the future, whatever that is, whatever tech that is that's that's coming along that we get a glimpse of is, is going to potentially be a major player tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow is always, by definition, full of uncertainty. Now, none of this, by the way, is to say that there are not concerns to be had about AI or social media or any of the other million-plus disruptions that we have in our everyday lives. It's just to say that context matters. And when you add a little context to the challenges that we face, when you start thinking about some of this stuff in a slightly more creative lens and say, you know, look, I know that social media is a pain in the butt and that it's full of dumbassery, but it's also kind of amazing. It's democratized information more than anything else in history, and and it has given us the ability to actually connect with other human beings that otherwise we would never even know existed. It is amazing. It takes a little bit of creative thinking to kind of reposition these, put context around it that can make you look around and say, hey, you know what? Maybe things don't look so bad. Hey, thank you so much for listening. I truly appreciate everybody's support here at Creative Discourse. Uh, I love doing some of this stuff, but I love more importantly that that there are people like you who enjoy exploring the kind of creative thinking that is necessary to actually have an impact in the world around us. And so if you're not already a subscriber for Creative Discourse, please sign up. You can get a free subscription and we send out quite a bit of free stuff. Uh, You can also do a paid subscription, of course. You get a few extras. Check all that out on the Creative Discourse About Me page. But most importantly, thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing and thank you for supporting this work. Uh, I, I really appreciate it and I love that we are able to start doing this together. I am Michael Schaus and this has been the Creative Discourse Podcast.